Good afternoon and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Emily Dieter, and today I am thrilled and honoured to be interviewing the Honourable Gillian Skinner. Um, she's had a political career spanning 18 years. Um, she's worked as the Minister for Health and the Minister for Medical Research, and she's also worked as the Deputy New South Wales Liberal Leader. Thank you for joining us, Gillian. It's a very great pleasure, Emily. Um, so to start, um, how did you first get involved in the health portfolio as a politician? Um, was it given to you? Was it a choice? Look, it's quite a long story. I'll cut it short, though. Um, immediately before being elected uh, to Parliament in 1994, in a by-election, I was the Director of uh, Youth Affairs in New South Wales, in the bureaucracy. And the focus at the time was on education, training and employment. It was a time of high youth unemployment. There are a lot of reports around uh, and about focusing on young people. Um, but despite that being the focus, I'd been asked to chair um, a ministerial committee to develop a youth health policy. And when I said, look, you know, I know nothing about health, the answer came back, yes, but you know the client group, and I want somebody who can facilitate, who can get all of the different players talking about, you know, working together. So that I did that work, and it was true, I, they did need somebody to facilitate. It ended up in a youth health policy, which was the first in Australia. It then became adopted pretty well Australia-wide, and it was taken to the UN, and they loved it. Really? Yeah. So that, that was, you know, ages before I was elected. Then when I was elected, within two weeks of being elected, I was asked to participate in a debate in the chamber about... Uh, it was a censure motion against the Minister for Health, and the whip rang me and said, will you participate in this debate? And I said... Yeah, sure. How long do you want me to speak and when? And he said, oh, about 20 minutes speech in 10 minutes. And I thought, my God, are you serious? I mean, I was a very experienced speaker. But uh, no preparation? Anyway, yeah. I went in and basically, and this is my advice to anyone, if they have to do these on the spur of the moment speeches, talk about something that you've done. So that's what I did. I spoke about that policy. A year later, when the coalition went into opposition and the leader of the opposition was choosing who were going to be in portfolios, they made me the Shadow Minister for Health. And I'm pretty sure a lot of it was based on A, that speech and what I'd done in that, youth health, but B, my background as a journalist because they knew there'd be a lot of media focus. So I, I actually stood for Parliament based on my concern about education actually, but um, I very quickly became as passionate about health as I was about education, and I remain that way to this very day. Yeah, I can see that. So that seems to me like it's one of those things that people always tell me it's about um, when um, chance and opportunity yep. meets preparation. So you already had all the preparation Correct. and then you had an opportunity. Correct. And, you know, it's the same now if I'm ever speaking to groups or anything. It looks as though I've done no preparation, but you do. You've got to in the background or you've refreshed uh, so that you can then speak off the cuff. But So anyone going into any of these fields, do your background reading um, and be prepared to take the opportunities when they arise because that's mm. what happened for me. Um, I might just change tax now. So um, a lot of the people that I interview on this podcast are actual public health practitioners. Yes. But what I'd be really interested to hear from you is how as public health practitioners can we engage people at the policy level more. 
um, like how could I, if you, when you were health minister, how could I come and talk to you or how could I engage you in a project that I was thinking of working on? It would vary depending upon the individuals. I mean, I was always very interested, uh, so I was doing my own research. And I, even though, you know, in New South Wales or any of the states, the primary responsibility of a minister is to keep hospitals safe. So a lot of it's based on acute care. Yeah, so but I helpful. always knew, and I had a very great high respect for people working in population health, in public health, and so on. And I always knew I wanted to really start giving a higher priority to uh, the things that I'd learned about talking to clinicians, to you know, families and patients right across the state. So try and get to people in the early stages of their political career or their career as policy advisors and whet their appetite. I mean, some of the social policies that became my priorities, when I first became minister, people said, what is she on about? Things like palliative care, organ donation, mm -hmm. reducing, you know, effectively ending the transmission of HIV, um, uh, integrated care, so community-based healthcare. These were things that were really my priorities, uh, as well as, of course, keeping hospitals safe. That is actually fantastic advice, because mm. I keep thinking, what could I have done to get to you? But I, it's when people are on the ranks coming up to let them know what's important. That's right. And yesterday I was or talking... Or what you think is important. Yeah, Everything's important. That's right. Well, everything is important. In health. <laughs> and it is. And, and for, the, for a minister, the real challenge is how do you make it happen, uh, particularly in terms of resources, when you've really got an obligation mm. to first and foremost keep hospitals operating 24-7. I mean, one of the pieces of advice I gave researchers at a function recently, uh, when they were asking me this, and I said, why don't you approach, do your research, do your own homework, try and find some early career politicians, people that have been elected recently who are not in cabinet, yeah. uh, and see, invite them out to where you're working, invite them to to your labs or wherever and see if you can't motivate them to become one of your champions. That is fantastic. I, yeah, like sometimes when people give me advice it's very airy-fairy but mm. that's practical. like very practical, something mm. I could actually do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they'd yeah. be thrilled. You know, once you capture some of these people with the amazing work you're doing, you'll have them. Thank you, that's amazing. And also I didn't realise um, again, like this is just such an amazing conversation that I didn't realise everything was so... I mean, I guess I did know it was primary health focused, but I didn't know in your portfolio that that was your main aim was to keep hospitals running because I, I come from a public health space, mm. so I just think everyone thinks the same as me. So that's really useful. Well, it has to be. I mean, the, the, the New South Wales health budget is about $24 billion. Yeah. The, the most part of that is in terms of providing acute care in our hospitals. Um, I actually introduced uh, a funding package and a program about four years ago called the Integrated Care Strategy with about $180 million, I think, to start with over the first four-year period. Why did I do that? Uh, in all my early documents, and I wrote policy, all my own policy in yeah. the early days, I, re I talked about the, the requirement, in my opinion, for what we called seamless health care, going from community, you know, prevention, to acute, to community, back again. But when you're giving money out to the districts that have got a responsibility to run hospitals, they're not going to find that money. So I gave them a pot of money and said, this is a central pool. You can seek grants from it if you earmark some of your money 
and it becomes a partnership. Then you go out to the community, you go out to GPs or other non-government providers and they get them to put uh, effort in. So skin in the game and it's going gangbusters. And it might not all be money, it might be GPs running a service that they'd never thought of before. And it's going really well. Fantastic. Mm. So what did you learn while you were in um, opposition for such a long time that you actually brought to the table when you were in power? Yes, I mean, keep in mind, I had been the Shadow Minister for Health for 14 years. Yeah. And I had travelled the state, um, every, I think for about five years running. I drove from Sydney to Tweed up the New England Highway and back down the Pacific Highway and I stopped every little town, every hospital. I visited every hospital in the state. I spoke at, at community gatherings, at, you know, you name it. And just getting from people what their concerns were. That's how I knew, for example, there was a huge demand for palliative care. And when I became the minister and I told the recently direct, appointed Director General this, he just looked at me as if I was crazy. Until we had a, a public meeting on health mm -hmm. and it came up time and again in the Q&A. She said, I see what you're talking about. So it's listening to people. But then um, the other thing, the, the advantage of having that time was I met some clinicians that I just fell in love with. So Stephen Leder, who it was public, you know, he is population health. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, uh, Stephen is a great friend of mine. And... Um, he would write, I first met, first heard of Stephen through some of the writing, his writing in the papers. And I thought, this man is exactly, saying exactly what I think. So I worked very closely with Stephen on preventive health. Um, and to this day, I mean, we exchange emails. So it's, it's learning who the really good thinkers are um, and working with them to to under, first of all identify what the problem is, then provides a solution. Loads of people talk about the problems, but it's then working out how do you find the solutions. And so can I ask what kept you going during those um, 14 years when you were um, in no, opposition? Yeah. Like what kept you going out doing those long yeah. road trips? Yeah. Like what was driving you? Even It's amazing that even in opposition I could raise concerns about a particular piece of legislation or a particular patient um, and have their problem solved. So if you, could, if you can save one life or, um, I'll tell you a story about Nairi Manning. Nairi Manning was 14 years old. She wrote me a letter yeah. uh, saying, it was one of parliamentary sitting day saying, I'm 14, I'm a patient at the children's hospital, I live here. Uh, my mum and my brothers and sisters live at Grafton um, I have to be here all the time because I'm having dialysis. Mm. My dad died recently. My brother was killed in a road accident. I desperately want to go home. Mm. Mum can't come, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I went and raised it in Parliament. I was shameless. I raised it. I, I talked about it in Parliament. You could have heard a pin drop. Normally in the New South Wales Parliament, they're rowdy and noisy and try to shout you down. You could have heard a pin drop. Overnight, because I'd run the hospital ahead of time. Mm. I knew they could fix this. Overnight, they put additional uh, dialysis staff on so that this girl went, could go home. And she went home the next day. And so you're in this for the same, even though it's from a different space, like it's policy, like you just Policy's only there people. to help patients. You know, so it's uh, all the uh, same kind of yeah. headspace. Yeah. After I retired, um, 
I had a conversation with a woman in the street, and I think she was a nurse. She said, I have no, how did you do that for so many years, the pressure, the commitment, and because I was out six nights a week and all of that. Why did you do that? And I said, well, why are you a nurse? Don't you work very long hours? Don't you have to? And she said, yeah, but I do it because, you know, I've got patients that rely on me, and, you know, of course, I love doing it for them. I said, well, that's exactly the same as me. That's You're why just I doing it at a population yeah. level. yeah. That's why I do it. Um, so just on that, I'm going to jump around. I've got questions mm. in front of me. But how did you keep, like with such a, you were just mm. mentioning you're out Amen. all the time. How did you keep healthy or keep your own space yes. in such a high-pressure job? Was there any kind of work-life balance? Or did you kind of go, this is my career time and I'm just going to let my life go? Look, I, I got such pleasure out of it that it, it was not a hardship. Uh, 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 towards the, you know, well, well, when I was minister and I was finding myself working six, seven days a week. Yeah. Um, and my, the, the other advantage is I was older. I mean, the media used to sort of say, silly old woman, throw out to a pasture. Mm. But the, the advantage of being older is my kids were grown up. And so they didn't rely on me to the same extent. Yeah. Um, my husband had a very successful career. He went off, did his thing. Occasionally he became Mrs. Gillian Skinner and attended functions, and I did the same for him. But so I could d- devote the time to it. Um, but at one point, I, I put my foot down and said, "No, I'm not doing anything on Sunday. That's going to be my family day." Yeah. And I tried to stick to that. Not always successfully, but I tried to. Okay. Thank you. That's good advice. Um, sorry again. I'm just looking at my list of questions. So something I do want to touch on, which is sort of a feminist angle. Um, in terms of, I mean, public health and politics. So women are still underrepresented in politics as they are in leadership roles in public health. Mm. Um, So what advice do you have? Like I mentioned to you before this podcast that I really looked up to you because you were someone who was walking the walk. Um, So what advice would you have for a young woman navigating the space of whether it's politics or trying to come up amongst the ranks? It is quite difficult because of this, um, you know, the, the... work-life balance, I guess, in a way. At, at a time when a lot of um, uh, young men are thinking about careers in politics, for example, um, they don't have a particular focus on family like a, a woman might. Yeah, I agree. Um, but nevertheless, these days I think it's easier for, you know, with the shared responsibilities, yeah. it should be easier. Um, uh, and it's a matter as, as well of uh, making yourself interested in you know get an interest in that particular area if it's population or public health get you know really become well informed and make that your specialty Mm -hmm. so when you're talking to people let them know that you know what you're talking about that you've got something special to offer tell stories about people tell stories about patients or about achievements that you're aware of or you've been involved in you'll become irresistible Okay, I'll try. <laughs> um, and what are you most proud of in your career to date? Like, there must be a lot of things, but maybe the top two highlights? Yes, look, I mean, A, I'm very pleased that, that we were able to achieve a great deal in the, the acute care hospital space because there's an amazing growth in demand and it will continue. So doing all of that and building or refreshing all the hospitals and, and everything is fantastic. But in, in, in some of the uh, public health areas... Uh, the achievements in HIV are absolute top of top of my list. Yeah. I uh, was asked a question in Parliament, uh, probably about a year ago. Uh, what is the government doing 
about HIV. And it's, you know, even in all my, my years in opposition, I'd said, please keep HIV and AIDS under the radar. We don't want any, you know, polarised views about it because some of these issues do have that effect. Um, so when I was asked that question, I thought, oh, well, here goes. Um, so I just told them, you know, we introduced a plan, uh, uh, an HIV strategic plan, which had it as its aim to effectively end the transmission of HIV by the year 2020. And I knew that we could do it because I'd worked very closely with some very special people, scientists and others, by, you know, early uh, diagnosis, early testing, early treatment, um, and so on, and then introducing epic uh, PrEP. Um, and I said in that speech, and we're well on our way. And in fact, recently the figures show it's gone amazingly well. And I said, and if I achieve that, if I can look back on my life and say, I have achieved that, it will be my proudest achievement as a Minister for Health. And I mean it. That's amazing. And I, mm. I think that certainly is an achievement yeah. in this country yes. that you should be proud of. Well, and just so before we finish on that, um, that was just before the AIDS Congress in Melbourne in 2012, I think it was. I went down, they had a, a New South Wales session there. Every state, because we really forced the issue, every state mm -hmm. in the Commonwealth signed up to that policy and it was taken, because that was an international congress, it's now gone overseas. Can I ask what made you particularly drawn or yeah. passionate about that area? Because yeah. it is a bit, some like you were saying, it can polarise people. Yeah. yeah. Well, apart from anything else, I have lots of friends in, in the high-risk category. Yeah, me too. Um, I had a member of staff who was HIV positive and had been since the 80s and was the most amazing, you know, advice, informer, informant advice. I'm only saying that because it was no secret. Yeah. Um, I worked very closely with ACON and some of the other groups. So, no, I, I've, I'd always been interested in this whole area. And that personal touch, like person, the, yeah, you, you realise from personal um, But the same, uh, the same thing applied to... Uh, organ donation and uh, some of those other areas that were my personal priorities you know okay. when you can see the difference it's making to to people's lives why wouldn't you give it a priority so is there a second high achievement like something you're proud of or is that Extent increasing access to palliative care very important yeah, you've mentioned that a lot. Um, really uh, pain management I became aware of the work being done in pain management at Royal North Shore because my next door neighbour at one time saw me carrying rocks around my pond at home. He put his head over the fence and said, you know, you're going to end up with non-specific <coughs> low back pain and here's a, here's a journal to read. <laughs> and in fact, New South Wales here, we were leaders in the world. But again, very limited access, was waiting lists of months if not years. So we've now extended that to centres right through regional New South Wales. So it, it sounds like a lot of personal stories have really affected you yes. through life. That's Correct. that's that's really um, useful, I think, for us to hear. And that's why I'm, you know, the advice I'd give to people if they want to try and get this on the agenda is tell your stories to people who are going to be captivated by them. Yeah, and we're epidemiologists sometimes, so we put numbers and graphs, and that's not helpful. Yeah. Okay, so we're running out of time, but um, one, two final questions. You know the last one because I always say that earlier. But um, what advice would you give to your younger self? Do it earlier. <laughs> no. Do what earlier? No, just get on with all of this earlier. <laughs> no, no. I, uh, look, 
my younger self, it would be take grab every opportunity that arises and run with it. I mean, I wouldn't do anything differently very much in my life. That is so time. funny. Like, not funny, like, but I've heard that before. Mm. People go, everything's made me who I am. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so take every opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, and before we go to the book question, mm. do you have any last thoughts that you want to get out to the world, anything you're really passionate about that you want to just tell people? Just, no, I think that. Everything I've said is my story. <laughs> Fantastic. And as we always finish up with, mm. is there a book or a movie or something that's really inspired yeah. you in life? Look, there are, there are loads of books. I'm a, a voracious reader, although my, I have dodgy eyesight, so I do a lot of documentary watching on my iPad now. Um, but all of the um, Steinberg books, all of those. Um, but most recently, and I, I was thinking of this when you gave me that, told me that question earlier. <laughs> there's a Professor Mohammed Kadra who's okay. who um, uh, is attached to Sydney University, but he works out at Nepean. He's written books. He's also an educator. He's written several books. Really. And I actually was speaking to uh, uh, medical graduates at Sydney Uni one day, and. Um, I quoted him extensively and discovered he was sitting in the Senate seats behind me. <laughs> um, he, he's written several books, one about when he was a, a student and a registrar, another when he was a patient because he had a cancer himself, and then another book about uh, the, 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 manage, the, the structure and the governance of the health system. But the thing that really gets to, got to me about him is he lectures, in his lectures, he started every tutorial and lecture with a poem and he made his students bring a poem so they had to the whole point of it was you can be great scientists but you've got to be you don't forget the humanity of what you're doing and that always stuck with me there are many books but that always stuck with me through the books that uh, Muhammad wrote you, people you. should read them I think I'm, that might stick mm. with me as well because that's yeah. what I'm always trying to get through to people it's not just about numbers yeah. thank you welcome uh, well uh, I think that brings us to the end thank you so much this has just been a thrill for me um, so thank you for joining us Gillian you're welcome um, and we'll join you next time on stories in public health <laughs>